Hi, and welcome to our latest edition of The Law Down, the podcast where we discuss employment partnership and other legal issues behind some of the key stories in the news. Um, my name is Beth Hale. I'm a partner at CM Murray, and I'm joined by my brilliant colleagues. We've got two senior associates, Pooja Daskapta and Wani Sander, and my partner, Emma Bartlett. Um, we've got four stories, I think maybe four and a half stories to discuss today. We're going to start with talking about Matt Hancock and his leaked WhatsApp messages. Um, then I'm going to talk about Gary Lineker uh, and his tweets. Um, then Emma's going to talk about Fiona Bruce and stepping down from her role with Refuge. And then we're going to talk about the Oscars and diversity. Um, so I'm going to pass over to Wanu first to talk about Matt Hancock and Isabel Oakshot. Thanks, Beth. So you couldn't have missed this. This has been a bit of a storm. Another one surrounding Matt Hancock, as if there weren't enough already. Um, so he had some of his WhatsApps, which were called the lockdown files or have been called the lockdown files, disclosed um, to uh, the Daily Telegraph by the journalist Isabel Oakshot. She had a non-disclosure agreement with him as she was helping him to write his memoir, um, interestingly titled The Pandemic Diaries. Um, and as part of that, he gave her a whole load of messages, about 100,000 WhatsApp messages between him and other ministers and officials that were taken, that were sent during the COVID pandemic. Um, some of the stories that it included were things alleging that he'd rejected advice on care homes for example and so there was pressed in the actual content of the whatsapp messages um, now it was said that Isabel Oakshot proposed to break, break the NDA that she'd agreed um, with, with Matt Hancock because she thought it was in the overwhelming national interest um, and that it could be over a decade before the official inquiry that's ongoing um, into COVID able to report back and to say I guess for balance which we're going to talk about a little bit later that um, Matt Hancock has said that it's a distorted account so the whatsapp messages he says are a sort of partial reflection of what was actually happening um, and he has seen this as a sort of huge betrayal and breach of trust by um, Spell Oakshot so I thought some of the interesting parts of this story is that it's, it's, it's not black and white um, on one hand, you've got Isabel Oakeshott disclosing information to the Telegraph, which some people does have some public interest. It was about COVID. It was about matters that concerned the nat our national health, really, and what the government were doing at the time and what they were discussing. And so to some people, it is important for that information to be out there and for it to be disclosed. But in doing so, what she did was she breached um, NDA, a sort of non-disclosure agreement, which had its fair share um, of criticism as well um, as a sort of tagging clause or um, a means to keep information that should be out there um, secret. Um, interestingly, I think, I think in this case, nothing has happened so far in terms of action taken by um, Matt Hancock. Um, in response to the disclosures, apart from him expressing his, his disappointment. In an employment case, something like this arose where you do have a breach of an, an NDA. 
um, there are some interesting questions around whether or not an employer can do anything about it. Um, and some of the, the debates around um, NDAs and whether or not it's in the public interest for information covered by them um, to be disclosed um, is, is around um, how they're drafted in the first place. Um, one point to, to, to make is that for most NDAs, there is, even if it's not written down, even if it's not expressed, usually an ability to make a disclosure that is in the public interest. Um, and within an employment context, if there is an NDA in an employment contract or um, most likely in a settlement agreement, if someone's settling a claim, um, there will usually be loads of sort of express carve outs for disclosures to uh, report to the police, to cooperate with the police or a regulator or, a, or the other law enforcement. So they're not get a really bad rap. <laughs> um, they're needed in some circumstances, but they're not sort of a blanket um, prevention of disclosure of information. Um, and this is one one such case that's, that's shown that um, that there's potential um, situations where uh, information covered by them can be disclosed. Um, there's also the other side of things where we're looking at. Um, journalists and where they obtain their their sources and their information and the flip side of this is that she was given the information in the context of helping to write a book but also as a journalist so the fact that she's disclosed all of this information maybe raises some questions around um, the confidentiality that somebody can hold in a journalist when they disclose information and um, that, that then might go into a into a news story um, and, and people might be dissuaded from, from disclosing information in the future if they think that they're going to have lots of their WhatsApps just disclosed. Um, so, I mean, I think this is one of those, as I said, one of those stories at the beginning that is kind of great. <laughs> um, on one hand, it's Matt Hancock, and I am very interested in, in what, what's in the WhatsApps, and I'm sure everybody else has some interest too. Um, on the other hand, um, it is a breach of an NDA if there was no public um, interest in disclosing. Um, I would just add to that the actual public interest defence, whether or not it's expressed or not. Um, it, it is quite narrow in a sense. It has to be of real public interest. So it, it can't just be some sensationalist information that we would like to know. Misconduct so, or, yeah, safeguarding or something like that. Interesting to the public and in the public interest. That, exactly. That there are lots of things which are interesting to the public but that doesn't mean they're in the public interest and I think that's a really key distinction and obviously exactly. we don't know the terms of the NDA in this case but um the emphasis that Isabel Oakshaw has put on the fact that she has done this because it is in the public interest suggests that there was a public interest carve out although we don't know that for sure exactly we don't know and even if there wasn't an express carve out um I think I understand that there is still a sort of uh, defence that could be given to any um, allegations of breach of the NDA or breach of contract or breach of confidence and um, relying on on um, the public interest. So yeah I think that's what I wanted to say about that case and sorry just one last point to make around it is just to warn people to be careful with WhatsApps and um, we were talking about this when we were planning the session and I think people think that it's the sort of um way it's like an, a cover all and anything you say in whatsapp will never be will never be revealed uh, but as this case has shown that is not necessarily the case 
Um, and, you know, even if it's a confidential communication, even if it's encrypted, um, there are so many ways for people to get hold of that information, not least taking a picture um, of a WhatsApp that's sent, even if it's a disappearing message, for example. Um, so I think it's, it's probably a bit of a warning as well to employees who might use WhatsApp and to communicate with other colleagues that that information should be treated as confidentially as they would emails, for example, or any other form of communication with colleagues about uh, work matters. Because um, that's closable litigation. That too. <laughs> I also think the manner of disclosure is, is also important, you know, with where, where you're faced with a potential kind of mass dumping and leaking of kind of a huge swathe of, of text messages, etc. I think that will all play a part in terms of proportionality of that disclosure, you know, if, if, if it came down to it and if um, Isabel Oakshot it finds herself on the other side of a breach of confidence claim, I think those types of things will be looked at and presumably if she'd taken legal advice before doing that, you know, I'm sure advisors might have something to say about the manner of that disclosure. Presumably they're not all in the public interest. Exactly, yeah. And there are lots of people named whose names are uh, in now published in Telegraph who are civil servants who had no... Um, who were involved in discussions around the lockdown process and the, and, and the, what was happening in government during the pandemic, but who weren't in government. And actually to put their names into the, into the public domain is quite, um, it's quite a big deal, I think, for those people who were just jobbing civil servants and not, not otherwise out there in the, in the sort of public eye. Yeah, I agree. And I'm actually quite surprised that the Daily Telegraph would publish actual names and not redact them or give them aliases or something. Mm. Um, given that, you know, none of us probably know who they are, that if the key players are, you know, Matt Hancock and any of the other sort of ministers, but um, not the civil servants. Um, interestingly enough, again, um, the ICO so far has, has sort of refused to, not refused, but they've said that they're not going to be launching an investigation into the leak. Um, and they've cited the sort of journalistic exemptions in the public interest. Um, so the, the sort of data uh, privacy data security issues there it'll be interesting to see whether or not those individuals have other remedies to either get their well they can't have their names redacted now but to get some sort of remedy um, for having their names disclosed and their information disclosed in such a way yeah I mean it's a it's an interesting one I think it's going to run and run um, I'm not sure we've even seen all of the stories yet I'm not sure the Telegraph have published them all yet so there's I think there's more of that to come um, so the second story we're going to talk about, which is not really related, but along a similar theme around kind of social media and, and what people say in the public domain and, and, and not in the public domain. Um, and it's about Garolinica. And again, one that I think you will have found it very hard to miss over the last couple of weeks, um, not least if you're a football fan and you were trying to watch Match of the Day on Saturday evening when uh, it was shortened to 20 minutes and they had no pundits and no commentary on any of the matches. So what happened here was that Gary Lineker put out a couple of tweets with criticising the government's proposed uh, illegal migration bill. And um, that caused basically a sort of Twitter storm. And uh, the BBC were heavily criticised for allowing him to, allowing someone who is a viewed in some ways, I guess, as a sort of spokesperson for the BBC, although he's obviously not actually a spokesperson, but someone who's a big figurehead at the BBC and uh, a major sort of, character from uh, who presents a prime time key BBC program um they were criticized for sort of allowing him to do that 
um, potentially in breach of their impartiality rules. Um, and what the BBC did was they uh, suspended him from presenting Match of the Day. And the result of that was that lots of other presenters, uh, Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, um, stepped down in solidarity. Players said that they were not going to give post-match interviews. Um, and most of the BBC's football programming over the weekend, last weekend, didn't happen um, as a result of as a result of this, the action taken by the BBC to suspend Gary Lineker. Um, and I think there are a few interesting things that, that well, I mean, it's a, just an interesting story. I go back to the sort of, is it in the public interest or is it interesting to the public? This one was certainly interesting to the public. Um, but I think the, the impartiality of the BBC is a really tricky area. And I think it's one that they have been struggling with, that everybody has been struggling with, particularly um, given the prevalence of social media. I think the BBC, it was not so difficult for the BBC to be impartial when it's, when it's presenters and its staff didn't have obvious public platforms um, to put out the, on which to put out their views. Um, now that they do have social media, uh, they what they have to have is a, is a robust social media policy. Now they say they do have that, um, and that there is a, I think there is a distinction in that policy between news presenters who are dealing with politics in their in their presenting jobs, and then someone like Gary Lineker who's dealing with sports and football, and you know, and, and therefore separate from the political arena um but they certainly felt that he was in breach he felt that he wasn't um and it's it's sort of i think in many ways has sort of backfired on the bbc because i think it's um yeah just had a sort of massive blow, sort of blown up into this huge storm the other thing that's interesting is that he's not a, a garolinica is not an employee of the bbc he's a um freelancer who is engaged to present match of the day and do various other presenting jobs for bbc but he's not actually a BBC employee and so there's a further question there about how much you can control what freelancers do as an employer can you limit or control what your what your freelancers do um in, on social media um and in terms of messages or sort of lessons for employers the first one is to have a, a really clear policy and I think social media policies need to be updated really regularly because um they social media changes so much all the time and so just um taking it out, dusting it off, reviewing it, thinking about whether it's still fit for purpose and thinking about who it impacts on and who and who it is sort of who is bound by it is really important. Reminding staff of what it says in your social media policy um, and being clear, frankly, yourself about what the what the limits are. Um, it's a really good reminder as well to employees that um, you are when you are an employee of a company, often on social media you are viewed as an ambassador of that company and you do need to be a bit cautious about what you say and you can't assume that there is a kind of absolute line between your social media presence and your work presence and you know you'll see a lot of people on social media will say views are all my own or they won't link their social media um profiles to their to their employer but obviously it's very easy to do isn't it if you see someone you know, I see that Emma Bartlett has tweeted something and I don't like it. I might look up, look her up on LinkedIn and see that she works at CM Murray. And, you know, so that's I think it's very it's very easy to link people, even if they don't publicly link themselves. Yeah, I, don't, I completely agree with that, Beth. As a consultant or a self-employed person, freelancer to the BBC, it, it's quite it, this all turns on what the terms of the contract would include. And you would normally expect if you were drafting on behalf of the employer in this circumstance to include something which would 
preclude them from uh, undertaking any action that would bring their their business into disrepute um, or not doing something which could give rise to a conflict of interest. Um, you might want to pull those freelancers, contractors into your some of your policies. Obviously, you don't want to create an employment relationship, but you do want to be able to control them. And I was interested this morning, I was listening to something where they were talking about um, Alan Sugar, who is um, obviously doing The Apprentice at the moment, and he's not an employee of the BBC, and he speaks out frequently um, on Twitter and social media. But at the point prior to doing The Apprentice and after doing The, the Apprentice, he agrees to tone down any um, any comments which might be considered political because he's a big political supporter of one particular party. Karen yeah. Brady, who's also on The Apprentice, is a is a Conservative peer and Alan Sugar's a Labour peer. So to, the, that I think that's what a lot of people struggled with, is this sort of perceived inconsistency that you can have people presenting essentially a primetime programme on the BBC who are not just expressing view, political views, but also are, are actually publicly affiliated with particular parties. Yeah. But Gary Lineker is not allowed to express a, a, a view about a, a government policy. I think, I think that's where people were sort of, some people were struggling. I, th I think it comes down to the terms of the contract. And, and as you said, making sure that policies are, um, have the relevant reach and are up to date in that respect. Because you see sports people talk using a platform. So Serena Williams might be using her um, status to make um, social um, policy statements herself. And that's entirely different. She's, she's self-employed. She's not engaged by anybody. She's not signed up to any particular terms in terms of her behaviour. Um, she may have some terms that she has to adhere to from sponsorship or from uh, appearing on particular TV um, channels, but it, it's a slightly different regime, isn't it? Where and pop stars as well might use their um, profiles to make public statements, but it, it all comes down at the end of the day to what the terms of the contract say. So, from yeah. a legal perspective, interesting for us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's also a useful lesson for employers to think about how to manage these things when they do come up. Because um, I think probably, probably the the ensuing row has been more damaging to the BBC than than Gary Lineker's original tweet, whether you agree with what it said or not. Yeah, sort of yeah. Managing, managing the situations and proportionality is really important. I think. I was going to add as, as you a point you just touched on, which is the inconsistency. And if there's anything to take from this, is even if you do have a policy and you do train on it, apply it consistently. Yeah. <laughs> And fairly, um, because people will pick up on that difference. And I think that was one of the difficulties for the BBC that led them to then conclude that they will um, update the policy. Um, it, it can be hard. I guess you can't always legislate for something that might happen in the future. Um, but yeah, if you can apply your policies consistently. Yeah, often easier said than done, I think. But yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're actually going to move on to another BBC related story, um, which is uh, Fiona Bruce and a comment that she made on Question Time um, and that what she has subsequently, she subsequently stepped down from a role with Refuge. Uh, Emma, you were going to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. So um, I like that in some, some of the press reports, they refer to Fiona Bruce and Gary Lineker in the same story as being BBC Wildcats. Um, 
although I don't, I don't think it's quite the same at all from Fiona Bruce. Um, she was presenting, um, as she does, uh, host BBC Question Time, and um, she took a, a question from the floor where the person making the question made a comment about Stanley Johnson, talking referring to him having, um, or his wife having spoken to a journalist and uh, accused her um, husband, ex-husband, of having uh, broken her nose and she ended up in hospital. And so uh, the criticism from the floor was uh, accusing him of being a wife beater. And um, Fiona Bruce, in her, and, and this is her position, and I, I think it makes perfect sense, that she said uh, she had to provide some balance and um, note that he wasn't, he hadn't made any public comment in respect of that story from journalist Tom Bauer um, and uh, she said for context to give balance um, that friends had said that it did happen but it was a one-off. The um, At the same time as being a, a BBC Question Time host Fiona Bruce um, like a lot of people have um, other interests and one of hers is acting as an ambassador for the domestic violence charity Refuge who um, immediately caused some criticism here and it was the charity women's aid who um, felt that Fiona Bruce's comment in respect to that question was unnecessary and irresponsible um, and they went on to say that domestic abuse is really a one-off um, and that uh, they had people who'd been upset by Fiona Bruce's comments so it, the from my perspective it's interesting because it wasn't the fact that she was um, acting in the capacity as the host of Question Time that was causing the issue here. It was the fact that she is publicly associated with um, a women's uh, domestic abuse charity um, in a very high profile way. And she's done some fantastic work um, as a campaigner and advocate um, for survivors of domestic abuse. But it was the link that the public can draw between um, one comment that she makes in one capacity and um, her other role in that respect. And you see this quite often in an employment context um, where somebody does something that's outside of their employment. And in Fiona Bruce's role, I have to say, I have no idea whether she is employed by the BBC or whether she's employed by the charity. I don't think she's an employee of either. Um, but the, the analogy that I'm drawing is here that um, you have somebody who can be an employee in one capacity and then be speaking out um, in another capacity on something that is totally unrelated to um, their employment. But uh, there is the, firstly, as you said, Beth, it's possible to draw a link between the individual and the employer, um, irrespective of the fact that comments may not be um, being said on social media as uh, or on behalf of the employer at all. Um, but individuals have to be aware that, uh, and I, I'm not in any way criticising Fiona Bruce in this respect, but it's the analogy that um, you have to be aware that comments that you make in one capacity can influence the other uh, role that you do. And uh, Fiona Bruce stepped down um, as from her ambassadorial role with Refuge uh, in order to, uh, I assume, to take the sting out of it and to allow the charity to continue to focus on its good work. But um, you can see in this situation that an employer can become interested in what the individual has done outside of the workplace if it impacts what they're doing in the workplace. Um, so that's why she stepped away, I assume, from refuge, is that she felt that 
that comment on question time um, would impact her ability to continue to act as an ambassador. Um, so I'm not suggesting in any stretch that if somebody makes a comment outside of the workplace, which could cause an issue for the employer, that they would need to um, step away from their employment. Um, but you can see that there may be a conversation to be had with the employer and it's right for the employer to have an interest and to seek how to resolve it. I, I also think that it might be something that, you know, in an employment context that, um, you know, when employees are considering taking up a kind of second role, if if that's allowed within the kind of confines of their contracts, kind of looking at the duties and responsibilities in each and ensuring that to some extent they are not not they're aligned they might not be aligned but then they're, they're not inconsistent with one another and the kind of reputational implications for each institution that you are representing in some capacity trying to tackle that head-on at the outset and then you know if they are too closely linked in some way then maybe taking a view at that point that actually this I can't do this other role because at some point it might you know my two roles might come into conflict um, or kind of seeking to negotiate the wording and, and the scope of your duties in one of the roles. Um, I think that would probably be the way to go about it in an employment context rather than dealing with the fallout after something's gone wrong. I think that's really right, Pooja. I think what the other thing that really interested me about the Fiona Bruce story is, was that was how um, much her comment was misquoted or quoted entirely out of context. So when I first read the story, what I read was that Fiona Bruce had said, oh, come on, it was just a one-off about, about Stanley Johnson breaking his ex, allegedly breaking his ex-wife's nose, which obviously does sound quite bad. And to sort of to, to sort of downplay domestic violence in that way does sound bad. But actually, when you watch the whole clip, um, it's, you know, it's as you say, Emma, she is putting balance in a way that the BBC, I think, would have required her to do. Um, for all sorts of legal and other reasons so it's it's just really interesting isn't it that I think it, and it shouldn't be a surprise but just that sort of quoting people entirely out of context um, and just only reading one one side of a story is always quite dangerous yeah definitely so Emma you're just going to quickly cover this is our half story another brief story about whatsapp messages Thank you, Beth. Um, so earlier this week, on the, it was reported about the Israeli education minister having to apologise to a group of Ethiopian Israeli schoolgirls um, whose teachers mocked them in a WhatsApp group on a school trip. Um, the girls had spotted the teachers messaging each other. And so it wasn't as if they, they were party to the WhatsApp. Um, they were just happened to be standing behind um, one of the teachers and noted that the group on which the teachers um, were having their social media chat was um, referred to as Black School Trip, um, which obviously is, um, is not great and uh, indicates some sort of subconscious or conscious discrimination with regards to their colour um, and an unnecessary label to attach to a WhatsApp group, um, really unnecessary. Um, and potentially offensive label. So it had been referred to um, by one of the girls um, as an absolute disgrace, which was probably an understatement of how it made them feel. But um, yeah, resulted in an apology um, from a, a, a very high official. That, that said, it's just a really solitary lesson. Um, people even now don't understand how WhatsApp, WhatsApping somebody is or can be any different from um, sending somebody an email or writing them a letter. Number one, it creates a 
it does create a trace. Um, you know, if somebody was to ask for um, disclosure and, you know, obviously in the UK, we have GDPR and WhatsApp messages can be caught by that sort of request. Um, and in litigation, WhatsApp messages can be caught by a request. Um, but it's it's still, it may feel like something that's intangible, but it really isn't. And the amount of cases that still come across our desks where WhatsApp evidence um, is um, just embarrassing for one party because of the content between employees and um, how loose the chat is and they don't feel that it's, uh, they don't recognise that it, it's still something within which you should maintain some sort of professional integrity. So I, I just felt that this story was um, interesting from that perspective and a, a, yeah, a solitary reminder about keeping anything to do with work professional, even if it's on a WhatsApp messaging group. And we've seen cases recently, haven't we, of police um, engaging in really unpleasant stuff on WhatsApp, um, which has uh, come back to bite them totally correctly, come back to bite them. And I think, yeah, again, just lots of reminders about how um, something you say on WhatsApp in a mo in the sort of heat of a moment might not look so good when it's being um, yeah. published on the front page of a newspaper a few years later. No, exactly. Um, so then our final story, we were going to look at the Oscars. We did a story earlier this year where we touched on the lack of diversity in the Brits, um, in the Brit Awards. And uh, yeah, so I guess perhaps a more positive story about the Oscars. Yeah, it's um, it's quite nice actually be able to end the law down on a positive note with a positive story rather than feeling sad about the world. Um, so recently, as everyone will have um, been, you know, watching on the news and seeing, you know, catching up on the Oscars, um, everything everywhere all at once um, absolutely dominated the Oscars this year. I'm still yet to see it, but I've heard it's amazing. Um, and they won Best Picture, and there were acting nods for Michelle Yeoh, who won um, Best Actress, um, and her her fellow um, actors and actresses also won um, Supporting Actor and Actress. Um, and there were also um, writing and directing Oscars um, for Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. And um, amazingly, uh, there were uh, so there were winners of Asian descent, namely of Chinese and Indian ethnicity, who took home statuettes in eight categories, which is the most ever in a single year. Um, and I believe the last time a woman of colour won Best Actress at the Oscars was in 2002, when Halle Berry won an award for her role in Monsters Ball. Um, and Michelle Yeoh has now made history of her own, um, becoming the first ever Asian winner of the Best Actress category, which is um, absolutely brilliant. Um, and there weren't just um, winners from Everything Everywhere All at Once. There were wins for the, uh, the head of the makeup department for The Whale, um, who became the first woman of Asian descent to win for makeup and hairstyling. There was um, the director of The Elephant Whisperers, who um, became the first Indian Oscar recipient for documentary shorts um, with her co-producer. Um, and there was also the uh, Natu Natu composer who won RRR's uh, crowd-pleasing best original song. So, um, I mean, the diversity of this year's Oscar winners obviously suggests that there has been some change since the um, hashtag Oscars So White started trending eight years ago now. Um, which, of course, at the time highlighted uh, the fact that out of 20 actors who were nominated that year, none of them were people people of colour. Um, and there was some recent research as well, 
that was published by the Annenberg Inclusion, in, Inclusion Initiative, which showed that in the eight years leading up to the hashtag Oscars So White protests, just 8% of Oscar nominees were people of colour. Um, but in the eight years since that hashtag kicked off, um, there has been some change um, in that the number of nominees of colour has now grown to 17%. So um, obviously, you know, despite the amazing victories of this year's winners, um, which is, of course, commendable um, and is just, you know, credit to their amazing talent, there's, of course, more that, that needs to be done um, to overcome the, the structural biases that I, I believe are embedded into the film industry from what I've seen and read and heard. Um, and, and specifically the way that it recognises and it, it celebrates talent. Um, I think it begs the question that if actresses and actors from minority groups can't get a foot in the door in the first place, how can they ever make it to the top to win these awards? And also, I was just thinking about how the Oscars voting system actually works. And um, because surely the future of the di of diversity of the Oscars relies on, on the, the makeup of its voters. So um, I think historically the voting, the voters um, have been linked to legacy institutions which have kind of long participated in the system and in the industry. Um, and obviously, you know, just because of how history has evolved, that's often comprised of a certain type of person. Um, and you know, I think there are there are steps being taken to address that and make the um, the makeup of the, the voters um, more diverse. But obviously, the, the percentages of, of people that are getting nominated who are from minority groups are still, you know, on the lower end. Um, and so I think it just needs there needs to be at every level of the system. And um, there needs to be, um, you know, people looking inwards as to, you know, how how the people that are voting can be more diverse. Because, you know, it's, it's obviously difficult to draw parallels, but in an employment context, um, you would always, you know, in recruitment processes, you'd be thinking, what's the diversity of your panels that are looking at recruitment? Because if those people aren't diverse themselves, then, you know, they might be more potentially more susceptible to unconscious bias. It might not be as representative of um, people they're trying to recruit. Um, and, you know, that problem then just rolls on. So um, I think there's obviously, whilst we can absolutely rejoice in the victory of this year's winners, I think there is obviously, as it's always the case, there's more, more work to be done. So interesting. But as you say, nice to have a sort of positive story for the end of our podcast. And with that, um, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Pooja. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Wanu. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next time. Thank you.